You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. In 1945, in the closing days of the Second World War, the world entered the nuclear age with the nuclear bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Here we are today, 75 years later, and the threat of nuclear devastation is still very much with us. But today's guests warn that it's not a sudden surprise attack that we should be most worried about, but instead, a mistake. I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today we'll be hearing about that concern from someone who's seen nuclear mishaps firsthand. That would be former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. He's been working with Tom Kalina, the policy director for the San Francisco-based Plowshare Fund, to help lay out this threat in the form of a new book called The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Uh, Welcome to both of you, uh, Secretary Perry and Tom Kalina. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. So just a little bit more on your background, Secretary Perry. You served as the 19th U.S. Secretary of Defense under President Bill Clinton. and You're also currently a professor of international relations at Stanford University. You have been crusading on the nuclear issue for a number of years now. Obviously, you already have uh, quite a distinguished career uh, under your belt. So what has been driving you right now to focus on the nuclear threat, which I I would suppose uh, probably a lot of our listeners haven't given too much thought to since the end of the Cold War? Well, the events in my life that led me to focus on this threat have been going back many, many years. Uh, Probably going back most dramatically to the Cuban Missile Crisis, when I was actually head of a small analysis team working with President Kennedy, preparing him with information about what was going on in Cuba. Every day that I went in the analysis center, I thought would be my last day on Earth. And I still believe that we avoided a nuclear catastrophe more by good luck than by good management. So the danger of a nuclear catastrophe has never been theoretical to me. Then when I was the Undersecretary of Defense in the late 70s, I was awoken by a phone call from the general of the North American Air Defense Command telling me that his computers were showing 200 ICBMs on the way, on the way, from the Soviet Union to the United States. He quickly added, it was a false alarm. Do not tell me the false alarms are theoretical either. They were very, very, very real to me. That is a a terrifying moment, I must imagine, and must have left a very long impression. So we are drawing here in this conversation on a wide breadth of knowledge and experience. uh, And as uh, I read in your book, some of it very sobering indeed. Let's uh, get to know our other guest today a little bit better. That once again is Tom Kalina, Plowshare, uh, with the Plowshare Fund. Uh, Remind us a little bit, if you could, uh, what the Plowshare Fund is. It's an advocacy group uh, advocating for, uh, against proliferation, uh, nuclear proliferation. And uh, interestingly, it has uh, uh, deep Bay Area connections. So tell us a little bit about that, uh, the work that's gone into that, as well as why it is that you think that right now is uh, the time to be talking about these non-proliferation issues. Sure. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Plowshares Fund is a global security foundation. Uh, So we actually give money away to the smartest people with the best ideas of how to reduce 
nuclear threats. Uh, so if you have money to give or great ideas that need funding, uh, let us know and you can find us online at plowshores.org. We're based in San Francisco originally, but we also have a, an office in Washington, D.C., where I'm based, and we do our policy advocacy work there. Uh, and the reason that I was honored to write this book with Bill Perry and, and why we're doing it now is in one to, uh, to focus on the 75th anniversaries that you mentioned of the first nuclear test and the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, uh, but also to focus on the upcoming election. You know, every four years we choose uh, a new president, uh, a new administration, and that means every four years we can reset U.S. nuclear policy. Because one of the things that we point out in the book is that nuclear policy is essentially the president's policy. Uh, the president directs uh, much more than anybody else what U.S. nuclear policy will be. And what we're trying to shine a light on is that right now we have a president, President Trump, who is very impulsive, uh, does not tend to take the advice of experts or advisors, uh, and yet he has the sole authority to launch U.S. nuclear weapons and start nuclear war and therefore end civilization uh, at any time, at any moment, within minutes. And we think this is tremendously dangerous and also unnecessary. It's kind of one of these vestiges of the Cold War, these leftover policies uh, that we don't need anymore, but was never changed. Um, and at the same time, we don't want to just focus on President Trump because we think there have been other presidents that have been unfit for this uh, tremendous responsibility. And in many ways, the responsibility is simply unfit for human hands. Uh, the, the authority to launch U.S. nuclear weapons within minutes is something, a, a kind of a pressure that, that no human uh, can really be held to. And so we need to change that policy before uh, someone stumbles into war before it's too late. Right. And part, basically the crux of the argument is that when we picture what a nuclear conflict may look like, I think a lot of us are picturing that sudden first strike, that Dr. Strangelove-esque a series of events that leads one side to strike another out of nowhere. And we want to be prepared to make sure that we can respond quickly and deter such a strike and act decisively. But you are arguing in this book that that is really not the threat that ha poses the greatest risk for nuclear catastrophe. Tell me why that is, Secretary Perry. Because the real possibility of a nuclear war comes from a blunder. A blunder that could come for a false alarm, for example, like the one that I mentioned. It could come from bad information that the president gets, for example, like President Kennedy was getting in the Cuba Missing Crisis. Uh, it can call from an unstable leader. Any of those things can lead to a nuclear war. It leads to a blunder in a nuclear war that basically end our civilization. Right. And uh, Tom Kalina, I mean, I, I think that a lot of us hearing that we would say, you know, that's that uh, mistakes are a possibility. They're something that we should be worried about. But at the same time, you know, you want your country to be prepared for anything you want. Uh, if, if another country does come at you, you, you want to have the capability to respond quickly and decisively. Why is that reasoning not convincing to you? Well, U.S. nuclear policy currently is based on the wrong threat. Uh, the threat that Russia might launch a surprise attack, a bolt from the blue. But that's simply not going to happen because it would be suicidal for Russia to do so. If Russia were to, were to attack the United States with nuclear weapons, we would be able to respond. 
and wipe out Russia. Russia knows that. We knew that. We know that. So neither side is going to launch um, such a surprise attack. Yet our policies haven't changed from the Cold War when they were geared for such an attack. So what we have is is quick launch policies where uh, the president, uh, on his own authority, can launch nuclear weapons within minutes because of this, you know, surprise attack threat. But again, it's not the threat that we should be focused on. We're actually making, by addressing a threat that is very unlikely, uh, the the surprise attack threat, we're making the possibility of blundering into nuclear war by mistake more likely because we're creating these tremendously short timelines that simply uh, no uh, human being can respond in a way um, that's that protects U.S. security. All right. A lot of good points raised right there. We're going to dig into more of them in just a second. Uh, But before, we do just want to remind listeners that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, as we mark 75 years living in the nuclear age, we consider what threats still loom. We're joined by former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, as well as Tom Kalina, the policy director for the San Francisco-based Plowshare Fund, to discuss their new book, The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race, and presidential power from Truman to Trump. So I, I imagine a lot of our listeners may be thinking to themselves, you know, we have had these weapons for a long time. We have not had any catastrophic mistakes with them uh, at this point. You know, we, we have the lack of craters in the ground to prove it. So are, are, are we perhaps overweighting the possibility of a, a, a mistake here? What, what would really make us think that this could uh, be such a big possibility? And Secretary Perry, uh, as your book illustrates, you have plenty of examples to show them. We worry about this problem because history shows it can happen. I mentioned already the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy, after that was over, said he thought it was one chance in three one chance in three of the Cuban Missile Crisis ending in a nuclear catastrophe. We avoided it, but it was more by good luck than by good management. And we should not have the fate of civilization simply depending on good luck. And this all feels so abstract, which is why I think it, I mean, for those of us that have not dealt with this policy directly, and also for those of us that uh, grew up largely after the end of the Cold War, I, I mean, I think that there is definitely a something of a generational divide here. So I think that that perspective of how close these incidents really have come at certain points is uh, is, is is very helpful. I mean, what do you how do, how, do, how do you go to work the next day when you've had a close call like that, Secretary Perry, and you've seen how close it could come? How does that inform where you go from there? Well, for one thing, you never forget it when it happens. And I've had three or four events in my life, which have seared into my memory seared into my consciousness, the danger of nuclear war. And so it's very, very real to me. And as a consequence of that, I try to inform other people of that danger. During the Cold War, most people believed there was a danger of a nuclear war and acted accordingly. But when the Cold War ended, we forgot about that. We thought the danger was over. We still have, between ourselves and Russia, Uh, almost 15,000 weapons, more than enough to destroy the world many times over. We still have the policies we had during the Cold War, like the quick launch policies, which are extremely dangerous. Uh, As a consequence of all that, I believe, and Tom believes, that today the danger of nuclear catastrophe is actually greater than it was during the Cold War. And that's a belief of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who make their 
famous doomsday clock, which had the minute hand now pointing closer to doomsday, closer to midnight, than it was during the darkest days of the Cold War. Now, obviously, I think a lot of our listeners would be surprised to hear that more at risk right now than during the Cold War. So let's uh, flag that for just a second. Uh, uh, Tom Kalina with the Plowshares Fund. For for folks sitting at home who say, I, I haven't really been thinking about this for the last 10 years. Uh, is, really? I mean, I can imagine a lot of folks saying, really? Uh, why, what have we all been missing? Well, you know, I think part of the problem here is that at the end of the Cold War 30 years ago, uh, people assumed that this problem had gone away. Uh, the Cold War ended, the arms race ended, arsenals started coming down in numbers, and people moved on to other things. And the problem is that when the public turned its attention away from nuclear dangers, the people who were truly invested in nuclear weapons stayed engaged, right? So you have a lot of money uh, going through this system. You have uh, defense contracts of hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, you have jobs that are tied up in this in this process. And so there are entrenched interests and bureaucracies that didn't go away. And so the policies underlying uh, nuclear war and the dangers therein, a lot of them stayed with us and are still with us 30 years after the end of the Cold War. And I think that's where the danger is, is that we're still living with these outdated policies, even though they have outlived their usefulness. So, for example, presidents having sole authority to launch nuclear weapons within minutes, we simply don't need that anymore. And it runs a risk uh, of blundering into nuclear war for no good reason. And I think that's the point we want to make to the public. There's no reason to keep these policies anymore. They are simply left over, uh, and it's time to get rid of them. Speaking there with Tom Kalina with the Plowshares Fund, as well as sec- uh, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. Uh, Tom Kalina, uh, maybe refresh our memories, because I think a lot of us take it for granted that uh, nuclear weapons are the president's weapons, and uh, that just seems natural to us. But there is a history here. How did it come to be that nuclear weapons became the president's weapons? Uh, great question. Thanks. And one of the things we did uh, when we were doing the research for this book was to go back and, and find the answer to that question. Um, I had assumed that the history would be that the president had sole authority uh, to try to decide quickly in case there were a surprise attack uh, from Russia. But in fact, if you go back to 1945, when President Truman took for himself the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons, there were no other nuclear weapon states. There was just the United States. So there was no threat of a quick launch bolt from the blue from anybody else. The reason why Truman took that authority for himself is because after the first two bombs were dropped 75 years ago on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, he was really taken aback by the devastation and the destruction. And he wanted to make sure that no bombs were used again unless he personally authorized it. So the good news here is that he took that authority away from the military and he said only civilian leaders shall have this authority. Uh, The problem is that he gave it to one civilian leader himself. No one else had any role or any say in that decision. And we see uh, a problem there uh, because, yes, that's a civilian decision, but it should be shared with more civilians. So, for example, the president should share the authority for first use with Congress. Uh, We think this would be more constitutional because, of course, the Constitution says that Congress shall declare war, uh, not the president. And yet we can think of no more clear declaration of war than the use of nuclear weapons. And today that power rests solely with the president. 
And again, your argument would be, obviously, this would gum up the work, slow things down. Uh, but your argument would be that we should not be concerned by the slowing of the nuclear response. Oh, I think the, oh, go ahead, Bill. I, I think the contrary. We we think that the quick launch is a hazard, not an advantage. The quick launch is what makes it susceptible to a blundering into a nuclear war, to responding to a false alarm, for example. We think that there's a great advantage to slowing down the process. The only reason for launching quickly is to get our ICBMs out of the silos before an attack occurs. But by, we are to, even if, but by, the, but by launching them, we don't really gain, gain any real benefit. The, the attack for the Soviet Union or Russia today is still coming. So we want instead to focus on our deterrence being effective by the, by the systems that cannot be destroyed in a quick in a surprise attack, our submarines, and by putting our bombers alert, our bombers as well, primarily our submarines. So in short, we do not think a quick launch is advantage. We think it's a hazard. Right. And uh, staying with you for uh, just a moment, Secretary Perry. So you mentioned uh, submarines a moment ago. So this uh, it's going to get a little bit grim in this portion of the conversation, I'm afraid. But in the hypothetical scenario where we are responding to a nuclear attack on us, uh, even if the ability to respond within the continental United States uh, was uh, damaged by uh, a nuclear attack, uh, there are still submarines out in, in in the oceans that would be able to launch as well. And you're, you're saying that that in itself could be a, a significant deterrence. That is our deterrence. That's our uh, survivable deterrence. And I should point out that even one, even one of those submarines has enough nuclear weapons to completely destroy the, the Soviet Union or Russia today or any other country. So one submarine has the capability to carry out a deterrent. Only one submarine has to survive whatever happens. So we do have a very strong deterrence in our submarine force. We do not need the additional deterrence provided for ICBMs, and, and indeed the ICBMs provide such a hazard or a danger uh, that we should be getting rid of them. We favor and we advocate in the book phasing out our ICBMs and basing our deterrence solely on the submarines and our bomber forces. Right. That's uh, another one of the three major recommendations that folks can find in your book, which once again is The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. I want to remind uh, once again that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we are taking a look at why the greatest threat of nuclear catastrophe might not be a surprise attack, but instead a surprise mistake. Laying out that concern, we're joined by former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, who we just heard from a second ago, as well as Tom Kalina, the policy director for the San Francisco-based Plowshares Fund. Now, I think what gets lost in the math and what's always stuck in my mind is this this this, this strange notion that you need 10,000 nuclear weapons to serve as a credible deterrence when even one nuclear weapon detonating on any country's city would be an unimaginable catastrophe. We haven't seen the likes of such devastation since World War II. Uh, I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I think anywhere in the world, really. So, at least not in one day. So, I, I think a really important point that you bring to the fore, Secretary Perry, in the book is the fact that uh, Russians are not suicidal. I mean, they have the many of the same values that anybody else in the world does. And if if you look at them as uh, real people, you know the the some some of this math just doesn't add up. And they're real people. They're not stupid. 
they're not suicidal. They're not going to do anything that is stupid or suicidal, and therefore they're not going to launch, try to launch a surprise attack. Their weapons are for the purpose of deterring us, just as our weapons are for the purpose of deterring them. So we are absolutely focused on the wrong threat, and because we're focused on the wrong threat, our policies are more dangerous than they need to be. We need to change those policies. And sticking with you, Secretary Perry, you, you know, discussing the issue of having one person with the sole authority to make this decision. Actually, let's draw that out for just one second. Uh, could you tell us anything about what that process is like? Uh, I, I, I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with the uh, attache that follows around the president with the football. How exactly does that process work if the president does decide that it's time to launch a first strike? He has his attache take the communication system out of the, that briefcase that he carries. He takes out of his pocket the codes, and in a matter of minutes, he can communicate an order to launch, and in another matter of few minutes, that order can be executed. Probably a total of five minutes are required for him to communicate the launch command, and then for the launch command to be actually executed. We set up this system. It's an amazing technical system, quite impressive in many ways. It's been set up specifically to allow for that quick launch, and it's exactly that quick launch which we think is the great danger. And so while we are impressed with the technical capability of doing that, we think from a policy point of view, it is a mistake to try to implement that. I just want to say that, you know, the, the danger of the president having the quick launch ability is that if there's a warning of attack, uh, of an incoming attack, that warning is communicated by computer systems, uh, by sensors and networked computers that the public may think are not vulnerable to cyber attack, but in fact, they are. So if the president gets warning of an incoming attack, uh, in our view, that attack is more likely to be a false alarm than a real attack, uh, because a cyber attack could have taken place that shows that there's an attack happening, but there actually isn't an attack happening. And so the best thing for the president to do is not to act quickly. Uh, because of the dangers of the cyber risk, uh, we think the only responsible thing to do is for the president to take no action in retaliation until the president is 100% sure whether the attack is real or false. Because the worst thing that can happen here is that the president would order a retaliatory attack to a phantom attack. In other words, the president would be responding to a false alarm, and therefore it would be the United States that would be starting nuclear war. Uh, so that is the <clears throat> ultimate nightmare, and that's what we're trying to prevent. I would just add to that, that if he, if he makes that order and then he discovers it was wrong two minutes later or three minutes later, there's no way, no way of calling back the missiles, no way of destroying them in flight. He will have started, irreversibly started, the process which leads to a devastating, catastrophic nuclear war. Yeah, a sobering point indeed. I uh, want to remind listeners one last time that this is KCBS In-Depth speaking right now to Secretary, uh, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, as well as Tom Kalina with the San Francisco-based Plowshare Fund. Now, looking at the other side of this, uh, a number of analysts have argued that Russia is pulling away from the United States in terms of its capabilities uh, it, of its nuclear arsenal. Uh, furthermore, they point out that the 
U.S.'s own arsenal is aging, and uh, there is in the works right now a widespread modernization campaign that's going to take several decades, cost many billions of dollars. What do you say to the concern, uh, Tom Kalina, that the U.S. may fall behind other countries? Uh, is that uh, an acceptable? Uh, is that acceptable? Does that increase the risk that the U.S. faces if it does not have the same capabilities as other countries? The way to look at this is, do we have enough nuclear firepower to deter an attack on us? And the answer is yes. As we said, we have submarines based at sea that are invulnerable when they're deployed. Uh, And as long as that's the case, no other rational leadership will attack us. It doesn't really matter whether two countries have the same number of nuclear weapons, whether those nuclear weapons are the same age uh, or how they are deployed. Um, So deterrence is is assured if we have a survivable second strike capability. Uh, Anything beyond that um, is to us unnecessary uh, and wasteful from a budgetary perspective. So what you have is countries making or, or analysts making political arguments to say that we have to have as many as the Russians. We have to have X number more than the Chinese, uh, this kind of thing. If, if, they're mo- if one country is modernizing weapon X, then we have to modernize it too. Uh, it's simply not true. And all it does is perpetuate or promote a new arms race where you have both countries thinking that way. And that's how you get to out of control numbers. And just to give you a sense, the last time we had an arms race, thinking this same way, we had the United States and the Soviet Union uh, together having over 60,000 nuclear weapons. There is simply no rational case for that. It's a political system run amok. And by repeating that kind of thinking, we're we're running the danger of a new arms race and and similarly out of control numbers. Well, we just have a minute or two left, and I want to get closing thoughts from both of you, uh, starting with you, Tom Kalina. So we are coming up on the end of a major nuclear arms treaty between Russia and the U.S., the uh, New Strategics Arms Reduction Treaty. It's going to expire early next year, there is some concern that the uh, Trump administration is not doing enough to get it extended. So we are at a moment where these nuclear treaties are very much in question. What should folks know uh, about the trajectory of the, you know, the state of nuclear arms agreements around the world and uh, what could happen in the next six months or so? Well, unfortunately, the Trump administration has been tearing down existing agreements, uh, whether it be the INF Treaty last year, the Iran nuclear deal, or now delaying the extension of the New START Treaty. Uh, If New START goes away, we will have no constraints on Russian nuclear forces for the first time in 50 years. Uh, It would be um, a real shame and a real danger to U.S. security. So what we would like to see is the Trump administration work with Russia, and Russia says they support this, to extend the New START Treaty for five years. Uh, But we're seeing no such activity on behalf of the Trump administration. In fact, what we're seeing is the Trump administration hide behind the excuse of wanting to get China into the agreement and therefore not negotiating with Russia. Uh, The problem here is that China has a fraction of the size of nuclear weapons than the United States and Russia does. It's simply not a good reason to delay. Uh, And so we need to see the Trump administration extend New START uh, as soon as possible. And barring that, uh, if there's a new president in January, that president will need to extend the treaty in about two weeks. Mm. 
All right. And uh, closing thoughts from you, Secretary Perry. You know, whenever we bring up this topic of nuclear arms and nonproliferation, my mind is always drawn to the famous protester that took up residence in front of the White House uh, from the early 1980s, Concepcion uh, Picciotto, who uh, uh, died about uh, five years ago, I believe. And that is, uh, to my knowledge, the longest running protest in U.S. history, right in front of the White House for 40 odd years, nearly. And here we are, you know, this person putting everything that she could into this topic. And here we are still with these nuclear weapons. There's obviously a lot of folks that would like to see things changed, but we are on a certain trajectory. How hopeful are you that uh, we can find a different path? I have to hope or I would be too, uh, it'd be too, too unbearable to think about it. We do not have any hope. But think about it this way. All of you understand what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You understood what one bomb did to one city. That bomb was about 15 kilotons. Today, we have one bomb in our force. We have thousands of bombs in our force, maybe four or 5,000 bombs, and Russia has the same. Each one of those bombs is about 10 times the size of the destructive power of the Hiroshima bomb. Some of them are even 100 times the destructive power of the Hiroshima bomb. And we have thousands of them. So we have gone completely out of control and what is needed for nuclear deterrence. We could achieve nuclear deterrence with a fraction of the present size of the force we have. In the meantime, not only do we have the cost of all those nuclear weapons, we have the danger associated with those thousands of nuclear weapons. All right. Well, we'll let that be the closing thought, but hopefully not the closing word on this important conversation that will be unfolding uh, for many years to come, I imagine. We have been speaking today to former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, as well as Tom Kalina, the policy director for the San Francisco-based Plowshare Fund. Once again, their new book is The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race in Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you for having us. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.